Hello and welcome to Genderfuck, the sexual health and wellness podcast ran by trans people and for trans people. I'm your host, Dan Griffiths. And I'm Oliver Ellis. Uh, thanks for listening. This is our second episode and today we'll be talking about some sexual myths. There's so many misconceptions people have about sex, so we figured we'd choose a few and just go over them and why they're wrong and what we can do to combat them. Yeah, for sure. Like, I just feel like to kind of talk about sex, you have to go through kind of what people's misconceptions and stuff like that mm-hmm. are before. And the first one that I think we should go through is kind of the idea that like only penetrative as in like penis and vagina sex is quote unquote real sex and anything mm-hmm. else around that is kind of lesser in a way. Because not only does that kind of limit what sex can mean for people who don't engage in that, but that also kind of limits what it means for people who do engage in that kind of stuff. Because there's so many things that you can do, like oral. Um, but if you kind of say that only penetrative sex is real it does just there's basically just like the idea that like anything that's like oral or like hand jobs or like fingering stuff like that that's kind of quote unquote foreplay to kind of warm up for the main act which is Mm. just something that kind of it one it centers uh penises and sex which is often kind of like a dynamic that's maintained by cishet men um and it kind of feels like their partner's pleasure is kind of like a second thought um in a way because it's kind of insinuating that their pleasure is not the main act. It's not the most important thing because most people with um, I think like the statistic is like 80 or 70% of people with vulvas can't come from penetration alone. Yeah. Um, so it just like, it kind of decenters their pleasure, which is you want everyone to enjoy it, you know? Yeah, no, totally. And I feel like it makes people feel bad as well who either just aren't interested in like penetrative sex or like can't have it for a variety of reasons. Or if people just don't like if there's not a penis and a vagina in the sexual encounter, like that doesn't mean it's not real sex. Like there's still lots of other ways to have sex. And it just like we don't want to make people feel bad based on what kind of sex they're having because it's all, you know, valid and pleasurable and great. Yeah, like I feel like there's... I've definitely seen stories of people who have like vaginismus or something like that, mm-hmm. like feeling, I guess, like a bit down on themselves because they feel like their body won't let them do what like is real sex, mm-hmm. like because of that myth. Um, and that's just like a really harmful way to kind of think about it and to kind of like how it's portrayed in the media is just like this big, like, this is the main thing that's going to happen. It's like the rest of it's fun too. Like, I'm not saying that like PIV isn't fun, but like there is so much more that kind of goes into what makes sex like satisfying and fun to do. Yeah, totally. And yet like, yeah, like PIV sex can be great, but also like it's not for everyone. So I feel like what we're trying to do is, you know, make sure people know that like whatever type of sex you're having is sex. Like it's not it's not just foreplay. It's like no less real as any other type of sex, I guess. Because um, I think people do like when they say sex, they mean like piving. Like that's what we use. That we use that phrase to teach in schools as well. Like people kind of assume that sex means piving when like we'd actually try to like separate it out and like say if you're talking about you know penis and vagina use that term if you're talking about oral sex say oral Mm -hmm. sex if you're talking about anal sex say anal sex like it doesn't have to be like foreplay is everything else and then sex means just one thing yeah for sure uh so another sexual myth that we were thinking about is that satisfaction equals orgasm um i think some people feel like the only way that you can find satisfaction in in sex is to orgasm. Um, But sex can be fun and really satisfying even if you don't come to that point. Um, I think 
it, it really shows in the way that we talk about it as well. Like people talk about finishing, like, oh, did you finish? And it's like, they use that to mean orgasm when in reality, like, just because you orgasm doesn't necessarily mean that the sex is finished and equally like sex can finish without an orgasm. Um, some people like have trouble orgasming because of, you know, a variety of factors, but that doesn't mean that they're not still like having great sex. Like there's a variety of things that you can do to feel satisfied and, and pleasurable. Um, mm -hmm. And there's actually only a weak correlation between like sexual satisfaction and orgasm. Um, there's a lot more factors to do with like who you're having sex with and like what your sort of mental state is and like the environment you're in. Um, and that stuff has a really huge impact on how satisfied you feel. Um, and for some people, an orgasm is really important, but other people, it, it just isn't. Um, so I think like, we just need to debunk this whole myth of like, that's the only way to have like a satisfactory sexual experience is to orgasm at the end of it. Yeah. But yeah, it kind of goes along with the whole, like, like going back to the sort of like penetrative sex stuff of like people thinking there's only certain ways to like have pleasurable sex, like the whole bigger equals better myth, which... I feel like people are starting to understand at this point isn't true. You know, a lot of people feel uncomfortable about like the size of their penis when that doesn't actually make that big of a deal. Um, there's lots of things I think people are so insecure about, like whether they orgasm, whether they make their partner orgasm. And like rather than sort of checking these particular boxes, I think it's more important to actually, you know, have a conversation about what feels good to you, what makes you feel satisfied and, you know, finding ways to do that in ways that both make you feel secure and comfortable. Um, so yeah, I feel like the main takeaway of this is that sex doesn't have to have like a specific goal or a specific endpoint. Um, pleasure and satisfaction like look different for different people. Uh, and so just, you know, think about what makes you feel pleasure, pleasured and what makes you feel satisfied and, you know, talk to your partner about it because it doesn't have to be just one thing. Yeah, because I think it kind of goes into this thing that always really annoys me personally of just people making like, very broad generalizations of what being like what sex and like what being in a relationship and like all of these things mean but then i'm like it differs between everyone yeah like you just can't make like it's like whenever i see tweets or something like that where it's like ladies if your man ain't doing this then like break up with him and i'm like what if they both just don't want to do that though <laughs> like yeah yeah, that's the thing. Like, sex is not this like one size fits all thing of like, okay, first step is this, second step is this, third step is this, and then you're done. Like, it just that's just not how it goes. Um, and we need to stop like perpetuating that myth. Yeah, for sure. Another myth that I personally find annoying, which is kind of goes on with that, is basically this idea that all trans people are into the same things, and it kind of usually comes down to trans people being submissive. And like one, it just doesn't make any sense because trans people are as varied as cis people in kind of their sexual interests and what they like to do in the bedroom and like all of that kind of thing and like what position they like to take, like bottom, top, first, all of those kind of things. Um, and I do kind of feel like my own observations and stuff is that it kind of like stems from a kind of misogynistic view of um and i feel like these kind of myths might kind of stem from misogynistic gendered uh expectations and norms around sex and stuff like that so kind of trans women are women so they must be submissive and kind of like act in a submissive way and then there's also the kind of other side of it where trans men because of the anatomy we may have because not every trans man has a vagina um but that kind of communicates like this expectation of submissive submissiveness communicates that like 
we're being seen as women and we have to kind of act like women and it's not to say that like being submissive is like a bad thing at all because I am one so because maybe I'm a bit lazy I don't know but, <laughs> but it's just kind of the expectation that every single trans person is like acts in a very certain way mm-hmm. in during sex which is just really like in the UK alone, there's about two hundred to six hundred thousand trans people. Like estimating, how the hell do all of those people all like the same thing? That just would never happen. Yeah, we're just but, clones of each other, literally. But it's like the amount of times where I've gotten this kind of expectation of what I'm like because of how I look, because I'm mm. like a small, like five foot six kind of twinky looking trans guy. Yeah. I've had people on dating apps on like on Grindr and stuff make these very broad expectations of me and I'm always just there like, but why don't you think that I could be a dom? Yeah. Like, yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely like people make all these weird assumptions that sort of contradict each other. Like I, I feel like sometimes I get people who assume that as a trans man I would only want to bottom because of my anatomy. But then I think I get also people assuming that I would only want to top because for for some reason like bottoming is seen as you know feminine or something that would cause me dysphoria, which like you know it does for some people, but it doesn't for other people. So it is just this thing of people not realizing that trans people have like their own individual thoughts and feelings and preferences, which doesn't seem like a hard thing to understand, but for some reason it kind of is. Yeah, I don't I don't understand why. I'm trying to, but Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get down to the bottom no, of it. Not a lot of logic or reason behind it. No, absolutely not. So another myth is that sex should always be natural and spontaneous. Um this is kind of something we talked a bit about in the last episode about consent. Um this whole idea that like talking ruins the mood, which again, isn't true. Um, talking is a really big factor in actually improving your sexual health and your sexual relationships. Um, you know, talking to not just your partners, but also talking to, you know, health professionals, looking at the sort of risk factors for the kind of sex you're having, talking about contraception and prep and all these things that, you know, make you more prepared for sex. You know, it doesn't have to be this like out of the blue thing that you don't expect. Um, you know, it, sex being more freely discussed, um, can actually sort of be a good thing. Um, and obviously lots of people do like, you know, natural spontaneous sex, but um, it's not a bad thing if your sex is a bit more planned or scheduled, um, you know, especially if maybe you're in a long-term relationship and there's kind of a routine around sex that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you can't still, you know, try new things and have a really satisfying sexual relationship. Um, I think people so, sort of feel pressured sometimes to, I don't know, be spontaneous when sometimes that isn't actually necessary. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just feel like a lot of those kind of expectations come from these very like fabricated, like fantasy versions mm-hmm. of what sex and relationships are like in pop media and stuff like that. So people try to kind of, because it is like, I don't know, there is something like kind of, I guess, satisfying about it in culture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like in when you're watching like a TV show or something. But, it just is not like that in real life but Mm. there's kind of this gold standard that people are kind of trying to achieve when it's purely fabricated yeah no totally i think it also is based on the sort of stereotypes we see around like cis sex you know i think Mm. a lot of the times it's like oh it's natural and spontaneous and one person always plays this role and the other person always plays this role which again like doesn't happen in all relationships um 
And some people just have to like prepare for certain types of sex as well. Um, you know, if someone's having anal sex and, you know, some people prefer to douche before, some people don't, but like, it's just kind of a preference. So that it might be something that it can't be spontaneous if there's something that you have to prepare for. Um, or if you're someone who likes topping in like a penetrative sex situation, but you don't have a penis, like if you use a strap on, you need to, you know, have that with you in order to do that. So it kind of needs to be planned to a degree as well, you know, so like there's nothing wrong with, you know, planning your sex life. It doesn't have to just be completely spontaneous all the time. Yeah, definitely. And then mm. like with that, there is the kind of gender role expectations mm. around sex relationships. And like one of the main ones is kind of this idea that cis men are always ready for sex. They mm. always want to have sex, but it's like, that's not really true at all. Um, and it's like there are co like there are a lot of factors that kind of contribute to what might make someone want to have sex, but it kind of does a bit of a disservice to men, I guess, in a way, to kind of assume that they're like controlled by their dicks, basically. Yeah, no, um, totally. Like, it, I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on men to have sex when you know they might not necessarily want to do that. Um, which, yeah, is all these sort of like stereotypes around any kind of gender just it's just not good for anyone really it's not good for any group of people yeah and like that expectation kind of is a bit of an issue of consent in a way mm -hmm. because it is that kind of thing where you see in like on twitter or on like in cult like in media and stuff like that this kind of thing where like a girl wants to sleep with a guy or something he's saying no and she's like what do you mean no like guys mm -hmm. always want to do that and it's like he is allowed to like consent is a two-way street bestie like yeah absolutely so yeah and then there's also kind of these roles around i don't think they're that common anymore but kind of the idea that if a cis woman is walking around with like condoms or something like that then she's easy or she's a slut and like mm. all of that kind of thing but it's like realistically they're just being considerate for themselves and their partner's like sexual health and well-being and like yeah kind of advocating for their own health in that way mm -hmm. um but gender i feel like trans people kind of flip a lot of these stereotypes on their head yeah yeah um so there's not really that much research or anything that i could find about kind of how trans people kind of manipulate gender roles and stuff like that in a way that makes it work for them but mm. Just, I guess, like our mere existence as trans people challenge these cis-sexist kind of ideas around what it means to have sex and like all of this stuff. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah. So on the topic of, you know, trans people and sort of blurring all these weird boundaries that people have. Um, so there's also this misconception that um, trans people on testosterone can't get pregnant. Um, but the fact is that testosterone is not an accurate sort of form of birth control. Um, even though it does tend to stop the menstrual cycle, trans mass people can still get pregnant um, if they're on testosterone. It's a little bit harder, but it still has happened. And it is very important for trans people who are on testosterone and don't want to get pregnant to, you know, continue to use some other form of contraception. Um, mm -hmm. like pretty much every aspect of trans health, unfortunately, it is very under-researched. Um, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence for trans men getting pregnant while on testosterone, but not a whole lot of formal evidence, you know, either way. But one recent study did find that 20% of the pregnant trans mask people that they studied were not menstruating at the time they got pregnant due to their testosterone use. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it doesn't, even if you're on testosterone and stop, it, it doesn't 
affect your fertility as much as people sort of used to think. Um, I remember when I started testosterone about probably about five years ago now, there was this big conversation around if I wanted to like freeze my eggs and how they weren't really sure what my fertility would look like, you know, down the line, um, yeah. which was kind of a scary thing to think about as I was like, I was like 16 or 17 at the time. And I sort of had to make this big decision because I felt like it would be like, it would be not possible at all if I didn't do this thing. And I didn't ended up, I didn't end up doing it because of lots of reasons. And like, I always kind of wanted to adopt anyway, but like, um, now people have found through some studies that if you go off testosterone for a while, your fertility kind of matches up to assist women's. It doesn't actually affect it that much. And you can still, you know, get pregnant and like have a family that way if you want to, if, even if you've been on testosterone. Yeah. Like I remember I had the exact same conversation yeah. when I was first starting and it was really weird because they were trying, it kind of felt like they were trying to like deter me because of the whole like pregnancy thing. Mm -hmm. So I was basically like, I was the same as you. I was like, I'd rather kind of adopt. And it's mm -hmm. like, I want to, like, I was basically explaining to them that like, I have a massive interest in psychology. Like, I feel like I kind of am going to develop some of the tools to kind of help me in that situation. Mm -hmm. And I basically just said like, oh, but it could be really hard though. And I'm like, having any kid could be really hard i don't really yeah. understand this argument mm -hmm. um but like it was just like really weird like as like a 17 year old having to really think about my fertility that much like yeah. it's an important conversation to be having with people before they start hormone replacement therapy yeah like, of course it needs to happen mm -hmm. but it is just it felt weird <laughs> yeah definitely and like with anything in trans research as well like i feel like every year we're getting more and more information which is really great but um yeah, it, it's just it's good to see it moving forward. Um, but there are yeah. still lots of misconceptions out there, even, you know, within the medical profession, which is, you know, kind of frustrating. Um, but that being said, every doctor I've ever talked to about this stuff has said, like, no, you still do need to use contraception. Testosterone is not a form of birth control. Um, and so anyone sort of telling you otherwise does not have all the information because I have literally had like usually cis men being like, oh, well, you surely you can't get pregnant. Like that doesn't make any sense where I'm like, you're not a doctor. Please don't try to talk to me about these things. <laughs> yeah. And I've also had like the reverse of like weird men on Grindr being like, oh, can I get you pregnant? That'd be so oh. hot. And I'm like, I don't oh know <laughs> you. I don't know who you are. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to like get pregnant with some random. Like it's so weird. Yeah. Just. Yeah, bizarre. Um, yeah, just not good. Um, uh, but yeah, basically, if a trans person tells you something about their fertility or about their body, chances are they know a lot more about it than you do. So probably just listen. Um, yeah. You don't need to ask like, oh, are you sure we need to use a condom? Or oh, are you sure you can get, still get pregnant? Because they know that answer and you probably don't. So yeah, just listen to people, I think, is a good moral of the story. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is important to note as well that if you are a trans person on testosterone um, and you do get pregnant, testosterone can um, affect the fetus. So it is important to like go off of it if you like are planning on having a child that way. Um, but yeah, overall, if you're on testosterone and you still have ovaries and a uterus, you should be using some kind of contraception to avoid pregnancy if you're having like penis and vagina sex with someone who has like a penis and sperm and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. And then also kind of backing off contraception and stuff like that like obviously using a condom and like a barrier method in some way can help you prevent getting like an sdi like a sexually transmitted infection but there's the kind of stigma that if you get an sdi that means you're dirty or there's something kind of wrong with you and that's kind of 
it's communicated in that way whenever people get like a SCI test or something, they're like, oh no, I'm clean. Instead mm. of kind of saying like, it's a better way to say kind of, oh, I got an STI test and X, Y, and Z, like uh, STIs came back negative. It's easier to say that because it doesn't have this kind of moral undertone to it. Like, because it kind of just like, it is coming off the back of sex negative beliefs of just like, oh, if you didn't have sex, if you didn't sin or any of this, then you wouldn't <laughs> have gotten an STI. And I just find it like really weird because it's like, we don't really ever talk about any other kind of infection this way. Like, you wouldn't go up to someone who's got like an ear infection and just be like, oh, if you didn't do this, then you wouldn't have gotten that. You're disgusting. You're whore or something like that. <laughs> like, that's so intense. Yeah. That's how people treat people with an SDI. And it's yeah. like, they just need to like go to a doctor, like get some medication if it's available and like all of that instead of kind of like shaming people because that shame also prevents people from getting healthcare in the first place because they feel embarrassed and they feel like their GP or the nurse or something is going to judge them and when yeah. they absolutely would not. Yeah, no, totally. It's such a big pet peeve of mine of like, especially people who sort of claim to be sex positive, but then are just perpetuating this like intense shame around sex by saying things like, you know, S getting an STI is dirty or like, oh, I'm cleaning or something like that. Because, you know, it doesn't have to have this moral weight attached to it. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Like if we just treated it like any other infections, it, like it would be absolutely fine. Like a lot of SDRs are completely treatable and manageable. And yeah, it just doesn't have to be as negative as people think it does yeah definitely um another you know going off of the you know the sdi talk in the last one another big misconception is that uh, only gay men can get hiv um or that like you can only get hiv through anal sex um hiv can be transmitted through um a range of ways through blood uh, rectal fluid vaginal fluid breast milk and semen so that's also like come and pre-come so anyone can get HIV, uh, people of any gender who come into contact with one of those bodily fluids through either like a mucous membrane like the vagina or rectum or through an open cut or direct injection into the bloodstream. Uh, and I think about half the people globally living with HIV are women, so it's definitely not only applicable to gay men. Um, mm -hmm. Certain populations like gay men are labeled as high risk, but just because a group might have a higher HIV rate than other groups, it is still more important to look at these like individual risk factors. Um, you know, not all gay men are necessarily even going to be at risk because of their own like you know, personal sex lives and stuff like that. Um, I think a lot of the, you know, this information people have on HIV is kind of based on all the stigma that came out from like the 80s. Um, and people haven't really questioned that. And it still really, it still really does, you know, influence how people see HIV, which is such a shame because it's, you know, it's a completely like manageable virus at this point. There's lots of medications that if people have access to, they can, you know, live happy and healthy lives. Um, and a barrier to that for some people is that stigma that other people put on it, um, which is like such a shame. Um, yeah, because I think it, like people still kind of have this conception that HIV is a death sentence and all of that. But yeah. there's so much just like important work that charities like the Terence Higgins Trust and people mm -hmm. like that who've kind of advocated for HIV rights for education and kind of research and getting PrEP out and getting it free on the NHS mm -hmm. in the UK. And just like, it's not anymore. Like people literally just take PrEP or PEP or any of the other like anti-retroviral uh, medications. <laughs> Can I speak? Um, and it basically makes it so 
your viral load is undetectable and then untransmittable. So you can't even, as long as it's undetectable, you can't actually even pass on HIV to another person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's come so long just in the past couple decades. um, And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, But Mm -hmm. there, yeah, as you said, there are lots of really great organizations that are putting the word out there. Um, I guess one other thing that also kind of goes along with that um, is the sort of association with like anal sex with gay men and that, you know, cis men who like anal sex must be gay or anything like that. Um, We associate like gay sex with anal, but not all people who have anal sex are gay men. Lots of people of other sexualities have anal sex. Uh, and also not all gay men actually have anal sex. There's lots of different ways to have sex between, you know, people of any sexuality. Um, and people can get lots of pleasure from anal sex. Um, people talk about the prostate a lot, but even if you don't have a prostate, there's lots of different things that go with it. Um, and anal sex does have some risks associated with it. Um, anal tissue can be fairly delicate and prone to small tears, which like can increase the risk of getting, um, you know, HIV or, you know, different STIs. But there's also lots of ways to combat this, you know, like warming up, using fingers first, using lots of lube, um, you know, practicing the safest sex you can within your own like individual risks is important over then just kind of like we don't want to just be categorizing a bunch of people as like risky when we don't actually know what their risks are, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. There's also just like some other things where it's just like promoting the use of condoms and also kind of like promoting the use of if someone is uh, using drugs that require needles or something like that, Mm -hmm. rather than kind of shaming them and kind of advocating against needle exchange programs and stuff like that, which kind of prevent cross-contamination and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Because people who are on certain types of drugs, you can't just go cold turkey or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So that's why there are like, those kind of I don't know what they're called exactly but they're like rooms where they're completely clean and they have clean needles and they allow people to do drugs in there mm-hmm. yeah um, so they can kind of like help them get off them but in like a safe and controlled way uh, that's like another very important way to kind of like help reduce the spread of HIV yeah I think harm reduction strategies like that are just mm-hmm. so important because again it's not about shaming people for what they're doing it's about like helping them actually have the you know, capability to make choices that, you know, are potentially going to have less risks associated with them. Um, Because, yeah, just shaming people is not ever going to help with anything, really. No, literally, it's like, if you look at any research about kind of like abstinence only, like sex education or something where it kind of shames people for like having sexual desire and wanting to kind of explore that. And then you see the statistics of STIs or unintended pregnancies and stuff like that, they're always a lot higher than places where they're given the tools to kind of like reduce any harm because harm reduction and advocating for your own body is just so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess this, we hadn't really talked about this before, but another, I guess, big misconception is the whole like, um, you know, idea that a lot of people, especially in the States have of like, if you tell young people about sex or if you give them condoms, then that's gonna all of a sudden make them want to have sex if they didn't before when like in reality like they probably know about these things and they probably want to do these things regardless and so giving them the tools to do it safely is actually a harm reduction strategy rather than something that's going to all of a sudden like introduce them to sex yeah exactly and i was like i was really dysphoric when i was like in my teenage years i didn't really like engage in sex and relationships and stuff like that because of it so if someone gave me a condom would have just been there like okay thanks i guess i'm not gonna use this like yeah it's not like it's a weird like gateway drug into like 
turning people into sex crazed <laughs> teens. Oh like gosh. even though there's absolutely <laughs> nothing wrong with having like a high libido or like really enjoying sex and stuff like mm. that as long as yeah. everyone's like consenting and all of that. Mm. Um but it's just like a really weird kind of jump for people to make. But yeah. Like... Yeah, I know I was I was like exactly the same. Like I used to um, I went to like a trans support group and they would have, you know, condoms in the bathrooms and I would, you know, I'd take one every once in a while and like never use it, but it just felt kind of good of like, oh, I have this thing. It's cool. But like, it didn't make me want to have sex anymore. You know, like I wasn't, yeah, <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't convince people to have sex. Like the act of like having a condom in your possession does not make people necessarily like want to just go out and have sex with someone. It's like, oh, apparently condoms are just like the ultimate aphrodisiac <laughs> by having them around. Imagine, like, yeah. <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. No. Um, so the final kind of myth that we wanted to go through today is kind of this idea that vaginas should smell a certain way and they should smell kind of like flowery or like fruit or something like that. And it's kind of a myth that's perpetuated by these companies that sell these products to kind of market it and like they basically market off people's insecurities because it's kind of like a bit of a societal like i'd always hear it like in high school and stuff like that of people kind of making jokes about like fishy vaginas and stuff like that um when these people like probably were completely fine um but like with that if someone's like if they smell like uncharacteristically like fishy or kind of very different or like there's a different change like there's a change in like discharge like it becomes like thicker or something like that then like go see a doctor just to check that there's not like a yeast infection or anything like that but smell kind of fluctuates with the menstrual cycle and like throughout the lifespan and it can change depending on what you've eaten within like the past few days and stuff like that but like basically the vagina is like very complicated it's got like a complex kind of bacterial flora and like just because there's there's bacteria there that doesn't inherently mean that they're all bad they're not all pathogenic there are some that are mutualistic which kind of control when they kind of help to reduce the impact that like pathogenic bacteria could have so like project like preventing infections and stuff like that and they can also help prevent some stis as well and like the vagina is like inside is um self-cleaning like you only really need like water around the genital area like don't douche up the vagina because that's uh like flushing out the vagina with like water or like various cleaners so there's like stuff where it's like water and vinegar or like some other kind of like herbs and stuff like that like don't do that because it it will like really disturb the kind of ph balance and all of that within the vagina and kind of like make you more vulnerable to infection and all of that um, and like one study done by Cranital in 2018 found that like those who used gel sanitizers had an eightfold increase in developing a yeast infection and were nearly 20 times higher of getting a bacterial infection. Wow. Because that kind of that imbalance in kind of what bacteria you have in that flora is so delicate and it shouldn't really be disturbed by these products. Yeah. Um, it feels like all this stuff is just like, I feel like so much of of any kind of misconceptions around sex feels like it's like the point is almost to just make people with vulvas feel bad like it just i don't know it's like it smells bad it shouldn't be like this you should do all these things and it just it it just isn't based in you know science or fact at all yeah it's like oh it smells bad and then it's also like oh you enjoy sex like how dare you like that's so bad of you but then it's also like if someone doesn't enjoy sex and it's like oh you're frigid and it's like we like people with vulvas just can't win yeah basically. really 
Yeah, and there's like not enough education on it either. Like they like they really do not set us up for success. I mean, I feel like the first time I even learned that like vaginal discharge was like okay and normal, I was probably like definitely in high school, like maybe like 16 yeah. or something and like I definitely should have known that earlier, but just, you know, our health classes just didn't really cover it. Um, which I just feels like it feels like can lead to a lot of sort of shame and like not wanting to talk about it if you feel like a part of your body isn't doing something normal then it can be quite hard to actually like speak about it. Whereas if we actually told people, you know, that discharge and like smells and stuff were okay, then it would be a lot less stigmatized. Yeah, for sure. Because I remember like when I first kind of figured out that I had any kind of discharge, I kind of convinced myself that I had like an infection or something, even though yeah. it was like completely normal, like it didn't smell or anything like, like smell like overly fishy or like that kind of anything like that. But basically like to clean the vulva so like the outer area of the kind of genitalia like you only really need water and to kind of just like go through any of the folds and stuff like that and get out any like debris or like mm. any kind of cotton fibers from your underwear or something like that but if you really do feel like you want to you could use a unscented colorless and very mild soap like mm. you can get like pure bars of soap that i I use those for like my tattoos and stuff like that because they're like yeah. really, really gentle. Um, but as long as it doesn't go inside of the vagina because you don't want to get anything up there. Yeah. Um, you could use that if you want to. You just don't need anything that's like heavily fragranced and is kind of like marketed to make you smell really good and like all of that kind of thing. Uh, like products like FemFresh and stuff like that, you really don't need any of that. And there's like, I know a lot of anecdotal stories from people that I know who have used FemFresh or something like that and then just got infection after infection after infection because of it. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, in part, maybe credit the fact that I've never used anything like that as, like, why I've not had an infection. Mm. Um, but it's just, like, it's better to for, like, your own kind of sexual health and wellness and all of that to kind of, like, do what your body needs it yeah. to do. You don't need to kind of fragrance it because at the end of the day it is a body part it's gonna smell like a body part yeah yeah if, if it was meant to smell like roses it would have been like evolved to smell like roses you know <laughs> yeah yeah and it's just you know it's like dark and damp and gets sweaty and it's just like it's just a part of the body you know it's just like anything else like there's nothing wrong with it yeah and like these same expectations aren't really put on people with penises mm -hmm. in the same way that it is for people with vulvas yeah um, yeah, and obviously neither of us are like medical professionals. So if you do have, you know, any concerns, like don't be afraid to go talk to a doctor about it. They hear mm -hmm. this stuff all the time and it isn't as embarrassing as you think it is. Um, so it's always worth if you're worried about something to get it checked out, because I think since there is so much shame about it, if something's wrong, I don't know, people do a lot of Googling or, you know, they kind of keep it to themselves when like, you know, like the doctor should be there for you. They should be able to, you know, sort of calm your nerves a little bit um, if you do feel like you need to seek out anything for, like, vaginal health. Yeah, definitely. Because, like, things like yeast infections and stuff like that, they're so common. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's absolutely just not anything that you've inherently done wrong mm -hmm. or anything like that. Because, like, even, like, some lubes and kind of even just, like, using condoms or, like, having penetrative sex and stuff could make someone more vulnerable to getting a yeast infection. yeah. You just need to kind of make sure that you're like checking in on your body and if anything you think is like even mildly concerning, just make a little appointment to your GP or like a nurse or someone like that who could 
just like kind of ease your worries or like if there's nothing wrong or just get you on like a course of antibiotics and then it'll clear up in like a week or two. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for listening to the second episode of the Genderfuck Podcast. As you've probably realized, there are so many myths about sex that can be really harmful if we don't question them. There is an endless amount, but we got there as many as we could, and we hope the ones we chose resonated with you. As always, feel free to get in touch with any feedback or questions. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at genderfckpod. That's also the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing. Once again, we hope you enjoyed the episode, and thanks for listening.